Dr. Charles Joyner, the borough's distinguished professor of Southern history and culture and the director of the Waccamaw Center for Cultural and Historical Studies at Coastal Carolina University, died Tuesday, September 13th at the age of 81. This program about Joyner's life and work was recorded prior to that date. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Professor Vernon Burton, uh, who has a lot of titles. He's Creativity Professor of Humanities and Director of Clemson's Cyber Institute. And Wink Prince, who is Professor of History at Coastal Carolina and also Director of the Waccamaw Center. And we're here to talk about a mutual friend and one of South Carolina's great native sons and historians, and that is Professor Charles Joyner. Recently, a group of his colleagues helped put together a book entitled Becoming Southern Writers, and Wink and Vernon edited that book. It's a book of essays in honor of Chaz, and so with that, gentlemen, let's talk about, well, first of all, we need to get a a little bit more about you. Wink, this is probably your second or third time on the show. You are. It's always a pleasure. You are an Horry County boy. People ask me all the time if I've lived in Horry all my life, and I say, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and Vernon, you're from 96. That's correct. You've had a career that uh, took you far away from South Carolina, and now you're back home. That's right. I learned that Thomas Wolfe was right. You can't go home again. But I literally physically did back to 96. Okay. After a, a long career in the state of Illinois. Yes. At the University of Illinois. Yes. Let's talk about uh, our guest of honor who's not with us, yeah. Chaz. I think his story of becoming a Southern writer is one we might want to want to share with folks. And who wants to address that first, Wink? Well, Chaz was a local man. A South Carolinian, uh, and he has a long history in, uh, growing up and graduated from high school in Myrtle Beach. Uh, and although he went uh, and taught in many other places, it's all in the introduction here to become, becoming Southern writers. I, I won't go into all the, uh, the itinerary of, of uh, his career, uh, but he, he went to some uh, institutions that are very well known uh, throughout the country. Uh, but in, uh, I guess it was the 1980s, early 1980s, he came back to Coastal. The Waccamaw Center for Cultural and Historical Studies was created by him, uh, and a position was there for him. Uh, and, of course, his, his family and his wife's family and his research interest, yeah. which, of course, was the history of slavery mm -hmm. along the Waccamaw River, mm -hmm. of course, was there. One of the things that's always fascinated me about Charles Joyner is his love and interest in literature as mm -hmm. well and how that intersected. Chaz is a prominent Southern historian. Uh, his work is so well regarded in the profession. His pioneering work not only on slavery but also in folklore. Uh, his wife, Jeannie, liked to say that Chaz is the only person she can imagine who went back to get a second Ph.D., and the only Ph.D. folklore that paid less than history did in the academy. <laughs> right. But it paid great dividends for those of us who want to understand the South, that he brought the skills of the folklorist and anthropologists and melded those with historical research to help us understand the culture of the South, particularly what I think he is right about, the intersection of black and white culture in, in, in the South. Where I was going with this is Chaz, uh, like many of us perhaps from the South, sort of thought, well, Southern history is provincial. I'm not going to do Southern history. So his dissertation was on John Dos Passos, right. which was never published. It was only as he wrote that matured that he learned as he is now famous for, to say that studying particularly a locale or a community or a place is a way to understand larger issues of history, perhaps in ways that we would not have otherwise. 
that's where I think our interest really came together when I was working on the upcountry in Edgefield and he was working on, on, on Georgetown. And that's one of the major contributions. And I like to think that how he developed as a historian, going from the idea that the, the South is parochial to seeing the South as a way to actually not only understand South Carolina or Georgetown or that, but to understand human relationships, or as Faulkner would say, my little postage stamp uh, of humanity. Well, I first met Chaz, and I think it was 1975, at a Newberry Institute for State and Local Culture. Uh, and he was then teaching in North Carolina at St. Mm. Andrews. Right. And it, it was interesting, in, in the 1970s, American historians really can began to rediscover local history. The English and the French had been doing it for generations, mm-hmm. and some of the New Englanders, but communities outside of that had, hadn't been done. And then, of course, Chaz's work, PhD in history here at the University of South Carolina, wrote on John Dodd's Passos, right. who did study communities, mm-hmm. and then got his PhD in folklore at the University mm-hmm. of, of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. All of that came together in that magnificent book, which is still in print down by the riverside. 25th. Uh, yeah, the Silver Anniversary edition. edition. Really recently. nice, University of Illinois. Vernon, I'd like to add something uh, that, that you touched on just a minute ago. One of Chaz's famous uh, dictums, and he has many, mm-hmm. was that all history is local history somewhere, mm-hmm. and that no history properly understood is of merely local significance. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people might have thought Southern history was parochial, but then he focused in on the Waccamaw. I focused in on South Carolina. Right. Vernon, you've done the upcountry. Wink, you have done PD, toba- PD and tobacco, tobacco. culture. Mm-hmm. And you could look at states across across the region, and local history flourished in the, in the 17, excuse me, 17, <laughs> in the 1980s and the <laughs> 1990s. And we should give some credit, I think, for... Uh, Another South Carolina historian, George Rogers, who early saw the importance Georgetown County. of yeah. local studies and, and championed them among his students and others. I've always thought that uh, he made a difference in this, what I see as a renaissance of understanding and taking history to a different level of, of understanding beyond just the, the history of the elites or others uh, and of how place and people come together to make a culture. Well, and, and George Rogers, his magnificent little book on Charleston, Pink, Charleston and the Age of the Pink, Pinkneys, great book. Uh, which was published Love by the you. University of Oklahoma Press. Yes. <laughs> but it was a study of American cities in a particular time. It's not a history of the Pinckney family. Right. It's just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great book to teach to students, too. Well, it is. But, you know, Wink, when you talked about all history is local, and we've all taught in South Carolina. Right. We've all worked with school teachers, and I tell them history is the easiest subject to teach in South Carolina because every community has a story. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if I'm not Charleston. Well, if you are in Greenwood County, the town of Greenwood, it's a textile town. It's a railroad town. Oh, yeah. You've got a, it's, it's got a history. It's a little, it's different. But old 96th District does have a colonial history. And it doesn't take a lot of digging to get to it. Um, I think you're exactly right. Oh, yes. And I I wish, I've always believed, Walter, and I think Chaz would agree with us, Wink, that this is the way you get students interested in history. It's their history. Uh, It was amazing. When I was at Illinois, I did a simple thing, trying to get students to uh, primary sources. And I had been working with a manuscript since returns. I had every student take one page of the census of their hometown, and we'd put them together in a database and look at them. These kids went crazy. We had more history majors than we could handle, came out of the basic freshman history course. They began writing these uh, honors thesis on their community. They really got into history because they realized they are part. Of, they are products of their history. Mm-hmm. Their culture, who they become, is shaped by the way their community was shaped. I think it's critical. That's one of the things that I think Chaz Joyner has done so well. Uh, you see it in Down by the Riverside, but you also see it in his later work where he really works on 
the intersection of black and white culture and something else that he's made a real contribution to is music. Oh, yeah. And I don't want us to leave that out. The understanding of music and what it says and what it says as its own history, but how it reflects history, how it changes history. Well, and, of course, actually that was his first major publication during the tricentennial of South Carolina back in 1970 mm-hmm. was uh, that book on on folk music in right. in South Carolina, uh, which I think opened a lot of folks' eyes. It always gets to be the English ballad tradition, but then you found out that what in those days were referred to as spirituals, African-American folk songs, mm-hmm. that the very anthem of the Civil Rights Movement began as a South Carolina Sea Island folk song. You know, that little pamphlet, it's in the libraries, but it's, it's, it's on my shelf. Actually, that whole, that whole series of 10 pamphlets, um, the story on the partisan war, which reflected really a very modern concept of insurgency that mm-hmm. uh, our military is dealing with today, that, that whole series was... Well, the one on the Land Commission. Yeah. Hmm. South Carolina has done some amazing things. I mean, I think one of the most amazing things is you in this program that has really brought history in a way that no place else uh, into the state and appreciation of it. But you look at the history of South Carolina, the work of the Caroliniana and the different historical societies, I'm very impressed that we do, I think, more than most states take our history seriously. Well, let's let's get back to to Chaz, because this this book came out of a, a project that both of you did at Coastal. At that time, Vernon, you were at Coastal. That's right. I um, replaced Chaz. Uh, Chaz actually wanted me to, uh, I was in Illinois, and he called me about, he was retiring and wanted me to apply for the Burroughs Chair in Southern History and Culture, which he had held. And it was a, a great honor. No one could replace Charles Joyner but it was a great honor to to even be considered. He had done so many amazing things for the state of South Carolina through using that chair at Coastal and really put Coastal on the map in the history profession. When you go to a conference, people would know Charles Joyner and Charles Joyner's work if you were from Coastal. So I thought it was a, a grand opportunity. And that's when I had the idea for this book. And it was, it was unique because Chaz had talked to me, Festivals you don't see very much anymore. You know, university presses do not, or any press, want to publish a Festivals. So I think it's to be commended. The University of South Carolina Press thought so highly of Charles Joyner. South Carolina was eager to do this for Charles Joyner, and I think, at least I am very pleased with the book that they have produced, and I think it's, it's going to be something special. It's unique. But Charles had said that, you know, because he had no Ph.D. students, there would never be a festival. So I said, well, let's think about that and let's do this. So I applied for a um, South Carolina Humanities grant and had a grant, had Chaz pick the people that he wanted to be at this conference to honor him with the idea that out of that I would put together the papers for a book. So uh, even though I put the conference together, it was Chaz Joyner who selected the people he wanted to be in this festrift or this book or at least the conference. Vernon, for some of our listeners, the term festschrift might sound strange. For those of us who grew up in the academic world in the 1960s and 70s, we all knew what it was. Uh, but as you say, it's rather rare today. I was going to say that uh, Festschrift, of course, is a, we don't have a word in English, so we borrowed one uh, from the Germans, who seem to have a word for about everything. <laughs> uh, it, it Literally, it means a celebratory writing, uh, and very often, uh, historically, uh, when a, a person, a senior scholar such as Chaz Joyner, is retiring and, and leaving the profession, at least as, as an active participant, uh, very often his uh, former graduate students and colleagues will write essays about him or her, and they're, they're published uh, in a volume of essays such as this. And I, I wanted to mention also that you touched on this a second ago. The idea for this book for this celebratory writing, or festschrift, um, for Chaz Joyner, actually began as a conference, historical conference. It was on for about three days, 
in February of 2011 at Coastal Carolina University. And the essays and were based in, in part on some of the, um, what would you say, presentations? Papers. Papers and discussions. Yeah, and discussions that were presented at this conference. I thought it was important. If I had stayed at Coastal, I would have gone there. But I thought it was important to have someone at Coastal to do this. And so I asked Wink, my dear friend, who also treasured Charles Joyner, if he would join me in editing this book. And I have made some bad decisions in my life. This one balanced out a lot of those bad decisions. I got a great co-editor with Wink Prince to help get this book done. As you know, it's like herding cats, Walter. To, and this is a lot of cats going one, in many thing, different directions. One thing about it, you just said there were a lot of cats. Um, most of the time, a book like this might have a dozen or, or 15 essays. We have 28 uh, essays in this book, otherwise known as the Thundering Herd, Walter. <laughs> uh, sadly, we, we actually lost one of our essayists, did not survive. Two. Uh, two, okay. Uh, there were times I didn't think I was going to survive it. But... <laughs> you mean they literally? Yeah, John yeah. Solomon and Burt White and Brown. Burt this White is the Brown. last essay of each of those two right. terrific historians uh, are in this book. Well, you know, in, in going through the book, and we always have to make full disclosure here, I do have an essay in the book. I, I must say we had to be a little insistent to get one out of Walter, who was reluctant, uh, actually in a modest way. But I realized not only because it meant so much to Charles Joyner, but to have the preeminent historian of South Carolina, mm-hmm. and Charles Joyner had done so much work on South Carolina I just think it's a fascinating story how a boy from Mobile, Alabama, becomes South Carolina's uh, preeminent historian. And and it's a good essay to talk about the others. How do you become a writer of the South? And we're talking about historians, but this book is not just historians. It's anthropologists, journalists, Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning poets. Poet and novelist Josephine Humphrey, right? Mm-hmm. Novelist, it's, it's extraordinary. How do you write about the South? Uh, and I think they come together in an exciting way to give some insight into how we all understand the South and maybe what we bring to our writing of the South. Not just what interests us, but why the why helps explain maybe what history or the poetry or the novel or the journalism that comes out that is our record of the South. I guess with multimedia and radio and TV and all that now, but the written record was for so long the primary way we understood our history. Well, and my relationship with Chaz, I've mentioned, goes back to 1975. He also is the reason that I wrote the history of South Carolina. I remember that well. I mean, that was, uh, I, I remember it very well. We had something going on at Southern Studies, and he'd come up for a, a lecture or what have you. And we always have a little reception afterwards. And he said, I, I need to talk to you outside. And he said, I just came back from talking to the folks at USC Press, and they wanted to know who could write a new history of the state, and I told him, you. And I said, okay. Uh, It was, you know, really daunting, and as I mentioned in the introduction to the history, depending on how the manuscript was coming, I either cursed or blessed Chaz for making that happen. Uh, And then when this show started, Chaz Joyner may not have been the first, but he was one of the first guests that we had on Walter Edgar's Journal. And we have had him back several times. We had him back for the 25th anniversary celebration of, of Down by the Riverside. Mm-hmm. Let's move to his, his other book, though, Shared Traditions. Oh, I th- yes. I think that oh, yes. is, I don't want to say overshadowed by Down by the Riverside, but Down by the Riverside has got such, uh, it's so well known on both sides. of the. It's not just the Atlantic because there are Asian scholars who, oh, who, yes. who mm-hmm. are very Australia, for example. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, are, are, are fascinated with it. But shared traditions explored the intersection of 
black and white culture in South Carolina, which really was, I think, at the heart of what Chas was trying to get through his whole life. I think you've gotten to the heart of it. Uh, Chas, an, another of his famous quotes is that that South Carolina culture is a blend of West Africa and Northern Europe, but as different from either as water is from hydrogen and oxygen. I and, love that. Well, whether you're talking about music as he explores... Religion. Well, I was thinking about just keeping it right there in Myrtle Beach when people talk oh, about, yeah. about beach music. Oh, my goodness. And the real story of beach music, mm -hmm. it's when young white teenagers like Chaz mm -hmm. discovered an African-American nightclub night yeah. out in the country and the music and the rhythm and that the, they on had. the jukebox. Yeah. yeah. It's in the early 1950s. And yeah. we should mention that Chaz is Shag a, is, comes out of that. Yeah. We should mention that Chaz Joyner is a terrific musician himself and that he played, played folk music, uh, backed up Pete Seeger, replaced him a couple of times and others uh, in the folk music tradition coming out of the 1960s. Um, when he was a graduate student here at the University of South Carolina. So he not only appreciates music, but loves it. One of the things, he actually led, uh, in a, uh, talking with both uh, Sheldon Hatt and Charles Joyner, led me to get one of my PhD students at Illinois to do a study of jazz and the civil rights movement because both Chaz and Sheldon Hatt, he told me that how they begin to change out of the Jim Crow racism that they had grown up with was their love of music and particularly jazz and that led them to thinking about mm -hmm. culture and about race in different mm -hmm. ways and mm -hmm. that sort of inspired one of my PhD students Nick Gaffney who interviewed Chaz and several other people about how music influenced them in terms of race relations and why they became progressive leaders in race in the South and how music played a role in that. So that went along with your beach music oh, and absolutely. other understanding as well. That is an intellectual side to that, too, that Chaz was very attuned to that a lot of people uh, were not. You know, he often says that uh, it was because he could play the guitar that uh, they elected him to be sort of president of that little group <laughs> of which uh, Dan Carter and uh, Seldon Smith and others who were f against segregation when they were graduate students, undergraduates here at the University of South Carolina. There are stories that come out of that. Back then, some of state officials thought that they were subversive. Hmm. Uh, and they actually were watched, were they not? Yeah, there was a picture apparently taken that was in the uh, in the in SLED's office that had them in a protesting you know, um, segregation with some African-Americans, at least of Selden and Chas, Selden Smith and Chas. And, and Selden for many years was on the faculty at Columbia College. Yes, right. Yeah. So, and a dear friend of Chas, he was at the conference and told some great stories that we wish we could have put in the book. Sharing traditions, it's, it's, it's more than music. Religion? Oh, um, yes. Yes, that's in there. Uh, and and uh, sort of the blend of of Christianity and some of the uh, West African folk traditions that sort of get blended in, syncretized in uh, together uh, with Christianity. The the music Vernon has already mentioned, and of course the the music of the gospel blends right in. We consider and talk about that the impact had only Elvis Presley. Or, or any number of Rolling Stones, any number of white musicians that were inspired by the music that comes out of, of that blending. Um, we certainly saw it in, in my generation. I, I'm a little younger than Vernon, not much. Uh, but I can remember uh, in the 1960s, growing up uh, in Ory County and being on the beach, working on the beach, big parties where the Tams, uh, the Four Tops, the Temptations, the Platters, and others would come, and then just uh, white high school kids and college kids would just jam the venues. And that was also on the jukeboxes, even in white clubs by this time. Uh, and the impact that it had socially and, uh, and, and our, sort of our context 
uh, in, in the 1960s. Many of our listeners will not realize that the law in South Carolina, even though you'd had Brown v. Board, of course, was still segregation. So mm-hmm. these were segregated venues. I think we need to mention two things about jazz. One, the Myrtle Beach he grew up in is not the Myrtle Beach that is there now. Oh, no. It was a small town that everybody sort of knew in a community from my understanding, though it really swelled in the summer when people came to the beach and think other times it was not that much different than a place like 96 South Carolina in the upcountry in terms of the nature of everyone, knew everyone, knew their business, uh, and went about it well, that way. And, and when swelled, it, it was with Carolinians. Mm-hmm. Some from North Carolina, but always from South Carolina. It wasn't from Ohio, Michigan, right. Pennsylvania, Canada. Oh, no, no, no. And they didn't live there <laughs> as they do now. When you mentioned the music on the radio, it's hard for folks today, I've, I've told this in my classes, to believe that there were white stations that would not play what they called black music. Race music. Yeah. Ra- race music. Mm-hmm. Or, or worse terms. Yeah. Yeah. My wife tells a story of she had uh, a Johnny Mathis record mm-hmm. and was playing it at a friend's house, and the friend's father came in and was furious that these girls were listening to that, and he pulled it off the record player and broke it over his knee. My God. Johnny Mathis? I can't think of him offending anybody. Well, but he was black. Oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. But, I mean, the, the music was so sm- smooth and soothing. Well, and it, it and, wasn't and I think this speaks, though, to the point that one of the things I wrote about Chaz here, the introduction, is his against-the-grain stand that we have come so far in South Carolina we forget what race meant at that time. And, and of course, the the strong feelings against integration, uh, the last stands for keeping the South uh, segregated, that Chaz is a product of that time. And for me, he's a real hero because of the stands he took and what he tried to do, not only in his writing, but in his personal lives, marching for justice and pointing to a better way in South Carolina. It made a difference, I think. Gentlemen, need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with Professor Wink Prince from Coastal Carolina and Professor Vernon Burton from Clemson, and we're discussing a book entitled Becoming Southern Writers, published in honor of our mutual friend and great South Carolinian Charles Joyner. Dr. Charles Joyner, the borough's distinguished professor of Southern history and culture and the director of the Waccamaw Center for Cultural and Historical Studies at Coastal Carolina University, died Tuesday, September 13th at the age of 81. This program about Joyner's life and work was recorded prior to that date. The other thing I want to make sure that uh, we don't leave out is Chaz's ability as a stylist and a writer. And you touched upon it with the book of essays, an essayist, which is a lost form. Uh, there aren't many great essay, literary essayists, historians today, but he is a master of the literary essay, historical literary essay. They're just gems. They're a pleasure to write, to read. They're a pleasure for people to enjoy, not just historians, but the general culture. And that's one of the things that was so good about Down by the Riverside. Chaz tells the story of working with a legendary editor at the University of Illinois, uh, Augie Meyer, and when he sent the manuscript in, I said, well, this is really great about this anthropological research and, uh, you know, all of the syncretic language and this and the other, he says, but, you know, you need to make this so people can understand it, not just the social theory and the work and the numbers, quantitative work behind it. So he used his daughter, who I think was about in the eighth grade then, if I'm not mistaken, Hannah, Hannah, and he read it to her. So if she understood it, then he knew that he was reaching a broader audience, and it turned into a great literary work, not just a great history piece, but a 
work of literary art. And that's part of why I think Chaz was so interested in uh, writing itself. As all good Southern writers, he, tell, he knows how to tell, tell a story. A story. Yeah. And I was just remembering back in the 1990s, I had a teacher's institute. We shared that with Clemson and, and South Carolina State. But we did a trip to Georgetown and he arranged to rent a boat, and we did a boat trip up the Waccamaw. And basically, he relived down by the riverside for those teachers. And he did it just in his, his own very low-key mm-hmm. way. And he had had that group very—teachers are a hard group. <laughs> he had them in the palm of his hand for almost two hours. Chaz was a great teacher. I was a student of his, as, as a grad student, uh, and so I, I didn't want to, to let this hour pass Fernand Walter uh, without mentioning that also. He also, interesting enough, sort of adopted the Australian and English model later in his life in terms of his teaching of uh, having people do a lot of writing again and papers again. His belief in the importance of writing and learning to write and the importance of primary sources Sources. uh, rather than just published sources of course but uh, like like you mentioned earlier or maybe Vernon uh, about the census using that using the slave narratives uh, the WPA slave narrative project of the 1930s getting us in that assigning each one of us a county you know, okay, you do Marion County, you do Florence County, you do this, you do that, and um, Georgetown County, whatever, digging out these nuggets, you know, from the mind, so to say. Well, in in many ways, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s were sort of a golden age of studying South Carolina history. Mm-hmm. Uh, A.V. Huff at Furman, uh, Lewis Jones at Wofford, every college in the state had Someone on the faculty who taught South Carolina. Whitey Lander. Whitey Lander at Clemson. George Rogers. George Rogers and Dan Hollis. I mean, Mm -hmm. USC had several. Mm -hmm. And as that group is retired, they're not being replaced. I was sorry we lost your paper. I'm glad we got the autobiographical one. But I thought the paper you presented at the conference on the history of teaching South Carolina history was a very telling and important paper. I'm still hoping you'll publish it, Walter. It will have to be updated because the number of schools that have regular faculty teaching South Carolina history are much fewer than they were in 2011. Sad to say. It is. A lot of it has gone to thematic history rather than geographical. But you could still teach South Carolina history in a thematic you know, sense. Interestingly, where South Carolina history is being taught and taught well, South Carolina State and USC Buford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Rowland's retired and Brent Morris was hired to teach South Carolina history. Well, you teach it, Wink. Yeah, and, and Southern history, yeah. yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. that coastal. Yeah. When I taught a class, the students, two-thirds of them weren't history majors. Same thing at Clemson. I draw from across the whole academic spectrum from my class. Oh, well. But Chaz would be the first one to be critical of what what has happened. Uh, Because, again, as you said, he was a fabulous fabulous teacher. He was indeed. And he used the primary source materials from Mm -hmm. South Carolina itself Mm -hmm. to teach in the local areas. Well, this state does have a rich history, but this book is not just by South Carolinians. Oh, no. You know, you do have the the Dan Carters who grew up in in the PD and uh, came to South Carolina first before he went off Mm -hmm. to Hopkins Mm -hmm. to get his his doctorate. But you've got folks from across the country represented here. Including several Yankees. (laughs) Well. And an Englishman or Brit. And some Australians, even. Yeah. Poet Laureate of the United States. Let's talk about some of the folks that are in the book. Okay. Of course, besides yourself, Walter, and and myself, and and, uh, Vernon, and Dan Carter, you mentioned, David Hackett Fisher, who's uh, at Brandeis, 
Rod Gregg is a local person. You mentioned Josephine Humphreys, uh, a novelist. Uh, she's from Charleston. John Insko, he's still Georgia, isn't he? Vern? That's right, and, and was very interested in autobiography mm-hmm. as history. Mm-hmm. I thought took a unique. Uh, David Mulca Hansen from uh, right here. Yeah, from Charleston. Yeah. Well, Bill Freeling, William Freeling, one of the great yeah. Southern historians. Uh, John Navin, he's uh, from Massachusetts. Ted and Dale Rosengarten, now that they live in South Carolina now, but they're they're from the North, um, and uh, there are others. Let's see, John Salmon. Well, there's Bird and Ann Wyatt Brown, Bill Ferris. So we've got people from all over the place. Bill Ferris from the Mississippi Delta. Sure. And then although Dan and Valinda Littlefield are now in South Carolina, mm-hmm. Dan is not a Southerner. Now uh, Val is from North Carolina. North Carolina. Uh, and we still debate barbecue. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking Ooh. of North Carolina, Bob Corstett, who you assume is North Carolina, but had Charleston aristocratic grandparents. I thought that was a very telling essay by a very sort of progressive historian as he comes to grip with his own history of Charleston and that family whose own father and mother had been part of the Southern Communist Party, and yet this tie back to the old South. I thought all of these essays were so compelling. Richard Carradine, who's one of my, uh, and I believe has written the, the best short biography of Abraham Lincoln, and he and I disagree about Lincoln. As you know, I argue he's a Southerner, and he sees that Lincoln sees the South as the other. But I thought that was a very, uh, from, he's now dean of, a, I guess he's retiring, but dean of a college at Oxford. Uh, as he wrote about uh, the South and the, and the locality there from outside is always good, I believe. And, of course, Natasha Trethway is one of the, uh, when we did the conference, she was not yet the, the celebrated poet of the United States, but she is now and has done some extraordinary uh, work. Hank Kibanoff won a Pulitzer Prize for his uh, book on journalists and the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It's quite a group of, uh, of writers. And Jack Bass uh, wrote one of the early histories of South Carolina in some way, and now another one, uh, who was a journalist who went on to get his degree in uh, American studies, I believe, at, mm-hmm. uh, at Emory. Well, at the conference, this whole group is a conference. Right. Okay. And you taped everything, didn't, did you not? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that in the archive at, at Coastal? Yes. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about a conference like that is not just the formal presentations. It was, were the, it was the side conversations that all of us had over the course of, oh, of three days. Oh, over the course of a lunch, you know, or dinner or over cocktails mm-hmm. or something. Uh, which unfortunately was not recorded. <laughs> or maybe fortunately. Or maybe fortunately. The, or over the cocktails. <laughs> Vino Veritas. I mean, that. Uh, Wink, why don't you pick a passage out of your essay? Okay. And Vernon will let you do the same. Walter, I'd like to read the first paragraph of my essay. The title of it is Discovering Local History. In 1998, Charles Jorner wrote, Horry County begins on the porch of Holiday's General Store in Gallivant's Ferry and extends east to the surf in front of the Myrtle Beach Pavilion. Of course, Chaz was not defining Horry by geography alone. With a single sentence, he traversed the county's history as well as its geography, taking the reader from a backcountry store founded in the 1860s to a booming Sunbelt resort in the 1990s. The two images symbolize the historical distance Horry County has traveled from its deep agrarian past to the glitz of the Grand Strand, a greater historical distance than the 30-odd miles that lie between the P.D. River and the Atlantic Ocean. The single sentence reveals Chaz's passion for local history and his eloquence in recording it. That's very eloquent too, my friend. (laughs) Okay, Vernon? Well, I hadn't prepared for one, so I'll just grab the first paragraph too and we'll see what it says. (laughs) Okay, Vernon. 
Well, I began with uh, First Chronicles 29 and 15 from uh, one of the few books I consider better than Down by the Riverside. <laughs> We're here for only a moment, visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. The journey has been strange and wondrous. Charles Joyner has been with me on the journey as guide, friend, and example. To explain requires me to tell the story of the journey. Never mind that it may seem to have taken me far from my southern home in historical studies. Joyner and I have both orbited always around the same southern sun, though his sun rose and set in the low country and mine in the up country of South Carolina. In these orbits, I have regularly felt the gravity of Joyner's magnetic pull. I first learned of Charles Joyner when I was a student at Furman University and attended a Southern Student Organizing Committee meeting on the campus in 1968. SOC was a group of Southern progressive students particularly interested in bettering race relations and ending segregation in the American South. Our naivete was evident in our symbol of black and white hand clasping over a Confederate flag. Our Furman University SOC got started just about the time the national organization was disbanding, but the Furman SOC continued even after the national SOC ended. The group needed a sponsor to legitimate our organization, and the person who was willing to help us was Professor Charles Joyner of St. Andrews Presbyterian College in Laurenburg, North Carolina. I learned later that on his return home, Joyner got lost on the back roads, which caused some concern for his wife, Jeannie, since in the late 1960s, working for civil rights or voting rights could still be dangerous in the South. All right. Well, I'm going to make a selection from Dan Carter's essay about becoming a Southern historian, because I think it's an experience that probably all of us shared. I was born in rural Florence County on the eve of World War II. Grew up on a farm that had been owned by my father's family since the 1750s. My mother's family had been latecomers. They didn't arrive from North Carolina till after the Revolution. Unlike my parents, who had been born in the age of the horse and buggy and kerosene lanterns, I grew up in the atomic age of the 1950s, but in the rhythms of my childhood life, I think my world was only modestly different. I had my first history lessons on our front porch as I sat spellbound. I was spellbound listening to the stories from my grandfather, Claudius Quintilius Carter. I never knew how he came to be named after the Roman emperor, Claudius Quintilius. Ruggedly handsome, even when I knew him in his 70s and 80s, he had a broken nose that came, he proudly boasted, from dozens of fracases in which he proved he was the best bare knuckle fighter in Florence County. <laughs> He told me of his struggles to wrest a living from the land for his wife and 11 children. Each winter, he had to cut trees on the farm, drag them to the edge of the Lynch's River, lash them together in a raft, and then drifted downstream into the Great PD and to the sea at Georgetown before making the trip back, 50 miles on foot. Sitting beside him on the front porch of our house, I heard again and again, Tales of the Great War always climaxing with the story of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, where my great-grandfather had been wounded, but stayed at the bedside of his dying cousin, writing down his last words, helping wash and lay him out, and then kissing him goodbye before standing aside as an army carpenter shut the top of the crude wooden coffin. In fact, I was ten before I realized that his harrowing tales of the Civil War were retellings of his father's adventures. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. I Walter, mean, I think you should read some from your essay. I enjoyed your essay yeah, very I much. I think everyone who's interested in well, South Carolina history needs, needs to know about how you got to be the historian of South Carolina. You remember the Southern uh, was in Mobile a few years ago. That's right. You were president. Of course you were. It was my first uh, was my first visit to that city, and Walter's well, essay sort of brought that back. Well, I don't want to talk about Mobile. I want to talk. I am go I'm going to open the open Sorry, do the opening paragraph. Okay. And there is a footnote that Vernon put in here that he more than twisted my arm, and it's entitled "It Wasn't in the Plan." Over the past decade or so, as a member of various search committees within and without the academy. 
I was struck by the number of applicants who came to interview with what could best be described as five and ten year plans. Aspiring college faculty members were sure that they would have several major articles out by a certain point, or perhaps a book, and of course promotion and tenure would ensue. For those in the nonprofit or corporate world, applicants had similar strategies. Somehow the idea of chance or serendipity was never calculated into their plans. Given my own career and that of many colleagues, including Jim Cobb, Vernon Burton, and Chaz Joyner, I still marvel at how unplanned things turned out. Did Jim Cobb ever plan to return to his alma mater as Spalding Distinguished Research Professor, and that's the University of Georgia, mm-hmm. or Vernon as Creativity Professor of Humanities at Clemson, just a hop, skip, and a jump from where he grew up in 96, or Chaz as Burroughs Distinguished Professor of Southern History and Culture at Coastal Carolina, right at home in his briar patch of Myrtle Beach. Well, I didn't plan on becoming a historian, much less a South Carolina historian or a radio show host on South Carolina Public Radio. Things just happened, and that's what I think in many cases is missing. I mean, I just was on a search committee last year for a nonprofit, and the candidates all, this is going to happen. Well, it doesn't always work out that way. They need to study South Carolina history or local history and, <laughs> and learn some things. Growing up, I had experiences like Dan Carter. My paternal grandfather was, uh, he actually was a native of England. He had, his family had immigrated in the 1890s, and they owned a huge, we call it the Pulley Works. It was an iron manufacturing plant in, in Mobile. And my maternal grandmother, she was incredible. She could give you the family genealogy, but it wasn't just the begats. Every person had a story. Great, great grandfather, we're descended from the second wife because the first, you know, just, and he had a, her grandfather had a mustache and she said, it was always drooping in his soup. You know, I mean, there, you know, there, there were, there were things that uh, made these people alive. They weren't just names and, and, and numbers. And when I go back to Mobile, and I do go back, I think our contemporaries, those of us in our 70s, we're the last generation, you know, I'll meet somebody and I'll say, oh, you're so-and-so's son or grandson. Mm-hmm. They don't, that, uh, the younger generations do not make those connections with the past as, as we grew up doing. In, in the autobiographical, or the essay that John Insko did here, he talks about how students don't identify as Southerners anymore. Atlanta, you know, the, they don't identify themselves as Southerners, which but is rural something. Yeah, students. Which is what, yes. It's interesting. He, you see, he, the students from, say, suburban Atlanta, hmm. or that, that's a suburb, but like suburbs all over the country. But he said the, the students from rural Georgia, that just might be from 50 miles away, uh, were a lot more, you know, quote, Southern, uh, or had the perceived identity more Southern, Southern, perceived themselves as Southern, more so than, you know, kids from the suburban Atlanta metropolis. In my teaching experience, I would, of course, South Carolina, we, you know, we do have people moving in, but over the course of time, yes, students, particularly from the rural areas, be they black or white, right? Oh, yes. identified themselves as as Southerners, and mm-hmm. I think it's the land, the sense of place, the mm-hmm. sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the agrarianism. Yeah, but to look at the way South Carolina has changed in the last 50 years, and the small towns, some of them have, li- have literally become ghost towns. Um, bedroom communities. Or bedrooms. You are, know, are, 96 was a thriving community when I left. I mean, uh, anchored by the self-meals, two meals there. Literally, great grocery stores, things of that. I got on the train in 96 to literally took the train from 96 South Carolina to Princeton, New Jersey, to go to graduate school at Princeton. People, there were taxi services, buses. I rode the train to work in chapels every Saturday at a store. There is none of that. I mean, there's no public transportation, no taxes, no anything. It's amazing. 
the change. It's a bedroom community. Well, drive through whether you're upstate in the in the collapse of the textile industry, mm-hmm. or the lower part of the state, the small towns that were kind of market towns. Yeah. For, oh yeah. Uh, Cotton and tobacco. Yeah. It is a different world. Okay. Alfred's given me the wind-up sign, gentlemen, so any last words before we sign off today? Wink, I'll start with you. It's been an honor to come here today and, and talk about this book uh, in honor of a great man and a great historian and a great friend, Charles Joyner. I would echo that and thank you, Walter, for, for reaching out to Chaz in this way to honor him. And we appreciate it. We appreciate your essay. And for your contribution, too, Walter, of course. Yeah. Vernon Burton and Wink Prince, I want to thank you for being here with me to help talk about our dear friend, Charles Joyner. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a very special session for me, not because I had an essay in the book, but because Vernon Burton and Wink Prince helped put together a group of essays honoring a very dear friend, Professor Charles Joyner. Besides being a great folklorist and historian, one of the very first guests we had on Walter Edgar's journal. Join us next week for more of the journal. Dr. Charles Joyner, the Burroughs Distinguished Professor of Southern History and Culture and the Director of the Waccamaw Center for Cultural and Historical Studies at Coastal Carolina University, died Tuesday, September 13th at the age of 81. This program about Joyner's life and work was recorded prior to that date. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.